now it's time for Rod and Real Radio with your hosts, hop along John Cassidy, fresh and saltwater expert angler Stan Vanderberg, and all around outdoors fishing and hunting enthusiast Wendy Toshihara. If you love the outdoors, enjoy salt or freshwater fishing, this is the show for you. We'll cover most all of the fishing tournaments and events with special reports while providing you with the information you need as to how and where to experience the best fishing opportunities in Southern California, Baja, Alaska, or just about anywhere the fish are biting. Rod and Real Radio brought to you by El Cajon Ford at Broadway and Main or online at ElCajonFord.com. Whether it's time for a new or used car or truck or you need to take advantage of San Diego's best quick lane for service with genuine Ford parts, brand name tires at competitive prices, remember nobody beats El Cajon Ford. We have some fantastic guests and reports lined up for you this evening, so sit back, relax, and get ready for the fastest two hours at radio. It's all right here, right now, on Rod and Real Radio, the best stop on your radio. Radio dial for all the information you need for fishing opportunities all over the United States. Now here's your host, Hop Along, John Cassidy. Well, Mark Larson, thank you in Southern California. Welcome to another Sunday edition of Rod and Reel Radio. I am indeed your underfished host, Hop Along, John Cassidy, and it is a pleasure to welcome you to the show tonight. I think we've got a really great show lined up for you tonight. I hope the holiday went well for you people. You're all settled in, had plenty of turkey. The football games, don't worry about them. Uh, the first half, they don't do anything. So uh, after the show, <laughs> make sure you look at the second half because I know it will be really exciting. Hey, talk about exciting, though. Let me tell you who our guests are tonight. First of all, right off the bat, we're going to have Bill Boyce with us. Bill is the executive producer and host of the IGA Angler's Digest as seen on the World Fishing Network. We're going to talk about what the heck happened to the U.S. tuna fleet. And with us is also going to be, and I have him in studio here, Mr. Tommy Gomes, the fishmonger himself from Catalina Offshore Products. Tommy, Tommy spent 12 years on the tuna boats working on it. Bill was an observer for many years. I don't know, I think it was like a dozen or something like that. So we're going to talk a little bit about the U.S. tuna fleet, what happened to it, and what's happening now. That'll be the first hour of the show. And then in the second hour of the show, pro angler Hank Parker is going to be with us live. Yeah, Hank is going to be calling us in from North Carolina. We're going to talk a little bit about Hank's career and get updated on what he's doing both in fishing and maybe even in hunting. So I know Wendy's going to be very interested in that. Hey, before we get everything all squared away, though, let me introduce to you the co-host of Ron Real Radio. First, this gentleman is the voice of 1-800-BASSBOAT and a pretty good fresh and saltwater angler himself, Mr. Stan Vandenberg. Stan, howdy. How are you doing, everybody? I am doing well. You know, this is a great show. we got... Tommy Gomes, who I, I've sent all these ladies that live down in the area down to find out how to cook their fish from him. And then we got Billy Boyce, who I've known forever, and I started out to be a wildlife biologist. He turned into one, and I turned into a bass fisherman. And, and then we got uh, Hank Parker on after that, and I've had the, uh, the pleasure of being uh, the guide host on his shows. And, and this, uh, for me, this is just a bonus round show. Hi, Tommy. Hey. How are you doing? How you been? Everything good? All things are well. All right. Hey, and let me introduce our listening audience to my other co-host. She is the national sales manager for Iserline and a pretty darn good 
outdoorsman herself, both in hunting and fishing, and I know she'll probably have as many fishing questions for Hank Parker as she will hunting uh, questions. Hank, Hank is just coming on back from a hunt in Louisiana, but let me say good evening to Miss Wendy Toshihara. Wendy, how you doing, ma'am? Good, e- good evening, everyone. Hey, Tommy, nice to hear from you. It's been a while, Wendy. How you been? Everybody good in the family? Everybody's good, and I spent all day making ghost pepper mango pineapple salsa. Nice. <laughs> wow. Thanks well, for the invite. Hey, guys, you know, you know that Tommy Gomes is over here. Let's bring in our, our other guest. I introduced him. You know, We've had him on several times, but he is the executive producer and host of the IGFA Angler's Digest, as seen on the World Fishing Network. That's only scratching the surface on what he does. Mr. Bill Boyce. Bill, welcome from Baja to be on the show. <laughs> Thanks, man. I actually just got back from Baja a few days ago, so I'm still uh, unwinding. But uh, anytime you're down there, it feels like I'm home. Uh, well, you know, Bill, and you know, before we get on the subject at hand, I happened to follow you on Facebook. And when you were down there, you had a tremendous vis- uh, video with you and a giant shark that I thought he was going to come up to the surface there and kiss you on the lips. <laughs> Probably could have kissed it. Yeah, there's a ton of whale sharks right now. I mean, they're all throughout the Sea of Cortez. You see a lot of them in La Paz. Started to see a few of them in Loretto, but up in Bahia de Los Angeles, where I have a home and have for 37 years, there's been an increase of the population of these uh, whale sharks over the last couple of decades. And now I would say last week, conservatively, there's probably a couple of dozen in the bay, and uh, we were coming back to put the boat back on the ramp after a great day of fishing, and um, we saw him gulping the plankton on the surface, so we stopped and got a little video of him, and he was, uh, he was more than willing to be on camera. You know, you know it, Billy, Billy I, I watched that little clip, and I thought, you know, he wasn't really trying to impress you guys. He was trying to say something on camera. <laughs> And he didn't voice it. You could see him lipping it. <laughs> right on, Sam, no doubt, right? You know, it is amazing with those whale sharks that as large as they get, they're one of the largest sharks in the shark family, that they eat absolutely the smallest of the creatures that are in the sea. So it just shows you what a balance there is in the ocean. And, and that's one of the, the things that we're talking about tonight, Bill. You probably haven't talked to him for a little while, or if you have, I don't know about it. We've got uh, Tommy Gomes with us, and say hello to Tommy. Tommy, yeah, we stay in touch a lot on Facebook, man. We unfortunately don't cross paths nearly enough, but we've got so much in common, and he's just such a great guy and does so many great things for, for so many people and the kids, and now he's, uh, he's an institution. Tommy, good to see you again there, buddy. I, I should be in an institution. Yeah, I know. Yeah, watch out there, Bill. Uh, his hat just about popped off the top of his head. Don't, don't do that. I have too many people coming down to learn how to cook from you at that seafood place. Right. right. It would be an interesting show, though. You know, that was that was a great thread, and, and uh, the topic's popping up more and more on uh, all the way around, you know? The, yeah, the U.S. tuna industry. And the reason why I invited Tommy, Tommy, you worked on the tuna boats. You know, your family, you're a fourth-generation uh, commercial fisherman uh, at that time, it's, uh, and you were on for what? How long? A little over 17 years. 17 years. And, Bill, you were an observer for a long time. Let's start off with you. I know Tommy came aboard because of the family, but how did you find yourself being an observer for the tuna industry? 
Well, that's pretty interesting. I, I went to Humboldt State, got my degree in fisheries, and uh, several of the guys from, from Humboldt went down and were working for the National Marine Fisheries Service and the Inter-American Tropical Tuna Commission as uh, biologists and observers, and I thought, well, that would be kind of a fun thing to do. Um, but I spent four years coming out of college with the Forest Service up in Alaska and Colorado and Tahoe and Oregon, and um, the uh, Mount Hood National Forest wanted to hire me full-time as a fish bio up there, but I didn't have enough points to compete against a vet because, you know, this is uh, in the um, early 80s. There's a lot of vets coming out of NOM and coming out of school and on the GI Bill, and, and with their, their veteran points preference, they would have outcompeted me unless I got into a full-time program with the federal government where I could have just come unilaterally out of that into that Forest Service job. And so that's where they said, hey, the program down in San Diego, it's an observer program, that will give you that status. So I I, uh, I applied and got hired and um, thought, oh, I'll make a trip or two and then, you know, go back up to Oregon and, you know, spend the rest of my life as a uh, fish bio for the Forest Service. But I tell you, after being on those tuna boats, and Tommy will tell you, seeing the concentrations of fish that you see, you know, going up in helicopters every day and, and just seeing what you see and experience what you, you experience out there and the travel, I I said, I'm not giving this up, man. This is way too much fun. So now, I said, Bill, what timeline are we talking about? What timeline are we talking about now? Oh, criminy. You, you, you want me to age myself? <laughs> uh, it, was 19, it was 1982 to 1994. Oh. I spent 12 years. Holy Christopher. And tell me, what years were you uh, uh, approximately uh, on the boat? Well, I mean, I started out very young. My, my dad used to walk into... Point. My dad used to walk into Point Loma High School and, and say, let's go, boys, get your brothers, it's time to go. And it was, you know, a couple of weeks before school was over for the summer. So we'd split. And, you know, we we uh, we fished up and down the coast all the way down to Panama. And, and uh, Bill, you'll like this uh, little saying, we fished outside the line and we fished inside the line. Yep. And, and we fished uh, Arduda, which was nighttime for bluefin tuna, local banks fishing, and all yep. the way down below. And we started fishing... Uh, Calarian and Hurricane Bank and all of that stuff at night and all the way down to Galapagos. And so it was definitely a, a good times back then. Yeah. Now, Bill, you yeah. were uh, asked to be an observer for the tuna fleet, and I'm going to make the assumption that this is past the time when they were using uh, uh, poles to bring in tuna. This is when the, the saners were going full bore. What was the premise behind needing an observer to be on the tuna boats? Well, what there was... This was um, around the mid-70s. There was a lot of, uh, um, you, know, you know, there was a lot of, uh, not a lot of public eye outcry at that point, but there was a lot of concern um, from uh, the government and a few other folks that had, uh, had heard that there had been a pretty phenomenal mortality of dolphins involved in the Persane fishery. And um, so the, the fishermen themselves were coming up with ways of uh, reducing that mortality, with uh, what they call porpoise mesh. It's uh, one and a quarter inch mesh, uh, whereas the most of the net is about four and a half inch mesh, four and a quarter, four and a half inch mesh. And previous to those porpoise panels being developed back in the 60s, um, you know, some of the dolphins were getting caught in that big mesh with their teeth or their fins, and they were drowning. So around the mid-70s, uh, the government and the fishermen got together and uh, and, you know, put their heads together and, um, and started to come up with ways of a back-down procedure where you'd back the, the, back the net uh, down to where the corks would sink at the very end of uh, the apex, what they call it, 
and uh, the sinking corks would allow those dolphins to escape. And um, so they started working together with net configurations, uh, net mesh, um, tie-down points, uh, pulling bunches, what they call bunches, to reduce the uh, surface area of the net, and to get those nets to behave properly in this back-down procedure. And uh, so they brought observers on to, to, you know, to basically diagnose these changes in these net developments and to monitor the mortality um, for the fleet and for the government. And what we discovered right away was that the mortality of those dolphins went down to next to nothing. I mean, the, 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 the industry itself cleaned up its act so well that it got to the point where when I was observing in 1982, just those few short years from about 1976 to 1982, the mortality of the animals was, um, was only poor, like 0.04% of the animals that were captured were, um, were killed in the operation. So that was like a 99.96% release record. Yeah. Which no, is phenomenal. Yeah. You know, no, Tommy, they found uh, chemicals in Delaware Bay cleaned up their effluent by 99.96%. <laughs> We'd be living in a better world right now. <laughs> Roger now, that. Billy, let me ask uh, Tommy a question. Tommy, during the height of the uh, of the tuna industry here in San Diego, and I don't know, there probably were boats going out of L.A. too. You may be just familiar with San Diego, or if you have a total number. How many vessels were actually involved in the tuna industry that you're aware with of here? Well, we had we had over 300 boats between Pedro and San Diego, but I want to I want to back up a minute to what Bill was saying about the the porpoise panel that was developed in 19 in the late 1960s by Harold Medina, and Harold was also the pioneer of the fleet, and he also is the developer of the back down procedure. Now, at that time when the in in the heyday when we had over 300 boats. Uh, I think Harold, there was five boats that left for Samoa in 68, 67. There was the Carrie-Am and, and a, a couple other boats that went over to, the, over to Samoa, and they deemed that the next frontier because the, fish, the schools were so big that they, they literally couldn't catch them because their nets weren't set up for it, and the water was so clear that it was mostly skipjack, and the skipjack would just sink. But when we had the 300 boats, we had... Uh, just here in San Diego, we had Ralston Perina, A.J. Hines, Checkerboard Square, Bumblebee, Starkist, Top Wave. Starkist was up in San Pedro along with Pan Pacific. And um, at one time in the late 60s, there was one cannery here in San Diego that was so big that it had its own can manufacturing plant down on 10th Avenue and fed 80% of the world. I know. Uh, in 1981, I did a, an article for the San Diego fishermen, and at that time, with the statistics that were available, the tuna fishing fleet was the second largest industry in San Diego, the Navy being first and tourism being third. So, hey, guys, we got to take a break right now. And, Bill, can I ask you to stay on for a little bit longer and we can a little bit more develop the subject? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no problem at all. And, Tommy, you're not going anywhere, I don't think. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're listening to Rod and Real Radio. Stan, Wendy, and I, we've got Tommy Gomes. We've got Bill Boyce with us tonight. They're going to be on with us for the first hour. So stay tuned. There's still a lot more Rod and Real Radio to come after these messages.
can count on El Cajon Ford, as so many Southern Californians have for years. El Cajon Ford has the cars and trucks you can count on, like the all-new Fusion and Escape, Edge, Explorers, and more. And now, Fiestas with 38 MPG and Focus with 40 miles per gallon highway, plus C-Max Energy with up to 42 highway EPA estimates. El Cajon Ford has them now. Shop online at ElCajonFord.com. Choose from hundreds of your favorite F-Series trucks, too. El Cajon Ford knows trucks, no matter what you're hauling or towing, for a great weekend of fishing or for some fun in the desert. Now get special savings on every F-Series truck in stock, 150s, 250s, 350s, at El Cajon Ford. We have commercial trucks, too, including the all-new Transit Connect, finally a commercial van with great mileage, helping your business get moving again. El Cajon Ford, worth the short drive from anywhere in Southern California, Broadway and East Main and El Cajon, or online anytime, anywhere at El Cajonford.com. Gamakatsu hooks are made from high-grade carbon steel, specially heat treated to make them light and extra strong, but not brittle. The Gamakatsu sharpening process is the most modern in the world and results in a perfectly conical point that is unequaled in sharpness. Gamakatsu offers a huge variety of hooks for all types of fishing, drop shot, extra wide gap, worm hooks, finesse wide gap, and a lot more. Gamakatsu has a hook for whatever style of fishing you want to do. Don't waste your time on a cheap hook. Ask for Gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now. I got a garage full of fishing tackle, and every time I get out on the water, I realize I forgot something important. But I never forget my life jacket. I make sure my buddies wear theirs, too. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Angler's Arsenal is the serious angler's first choice for hand-poured plastics. McCoy Line, Spro Products, Gamakatsu Hooks, G. Loomis Fishing Rods, Shimano Products, Ovet Reels, and just about anything you hear advertised on Rod and Reel Radio. Go to anglersarsenal.com and visit our online tackle store. See the huge selection of Western Plastics hand-poured baits, all at anglersarsenal.com. Angler's Arsenal Tackle Store is conveniently located in La Mesa, just off Interstate 8. Give us a call at 1-800-428-8730. 2015 and 16, Quantum Fishing's gone and done it again for you with the brand new redesigned Smoke PT Reel Series. Everything from your spinning reels all the way to your bait casters, the PTA design has a new PTXA frame, lighter, stronger, bone crushing drag. Quantum Fishing, we are performance tuned. Check them out at Angler's Arsenal in La Mesa or anglersarsenal.com or give us a call at 619-466-8355. Hi, this is BSS record holder Dean Rojas. El Cajon Ford helped me when I got started in my career and let them help you with a new F-Series Ford truck. And remember, nobody beats El Cajon Ford. Stan, Wendy, and I, we want to welcome you back to Ron Real Radio. Hey, our special guests in this first hour are Mr. Bill Boyce, executive producer and the host of the IGFA Angler's Digest, as seen on the World Fishing Network, and the fishmonger himself from Catalina Offshore Products, Mr. Tommy Gomes. We're talking a little bit about what happened to the tuna fleet and the industry here in the United States. And Bill, we were talking about you as being observer. Tommy, he worked on the boats for 17 years. So, Bill, you were put on the boats, and I guess there was a um, a fear that the bycatch, which were at that time porpoises, were uh, was going to be so great that there had to be something that had to be done. There was something that was done, but tell me, in the years that you were, you know, there as an observer. Did that kill rate, did it stay down? And then what started, and I know this could be a long topic, but what started 
the demise of the fleet? Was it environmentalist? Was it bad publicity? Was it the cost of doing business? Was it competition from uh, foreign competitors or what? And, Bill, start off. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. The mortality of the animals actually actually reduced even more um, because um, not just from technique, improvements of uh, gear and technique, but um, just through the, the intelligence of the animals of, of themselves. I mean, you're talking about animals that are extremely smart when you've got them in a captive environment, and people, you know, rave about how smart they are, but the public doesn't give those animals any credit for their intelligence in the open ocean. Right. And um, I was in the nets, you know, every set. I'd get out there and I'd hand-release these dolphins. And, um, I mean, you'd see some old-timers out there. You know, you live in about 35, 40 years old, spotted dolphins and uh, spinner dolphins. And you'd, you'd grab a dolphin by the snout to pull it out of the corks, and it'd have no teeth left. I mean, the teeth are literally worn down to the gums. That's how old they were. And they were so smart, they'd just come rolling up to you and let you grab them. And so what had happened over that 20-year period from, like, Tommy's talking about the late 60s to about, um, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, um, the, the animals themselves just got a heck of a lot smarter to the operation. So by the time you'd get into the, what they call the back-down sequence, where you'd tie the net to the boat and back the boat in reverse at about three knots, and the net that would once be round in shape out there would become very oblong in shape, and uh, at the very end of that apex, is where those corks would sink. And as soon as you put the boats in reverse, Tommy can attest to it. I mean, the dolphins would already be heading to that channel. I mean, yeah. they just they just knew. I mean, you know, most of, those, most of the dolphins in the Eastern Pacific Ocean at some point in their life had been wrapped, you know, by a boat before. And well, so, uh, but, but what I would do is during the sets, I would free dive out there with the dolphins and try to diagnose the behavior. Like, are they, are they being stressed? Are they... Um, you know, do they, do they look like, you know, they're being affected in any way phys- phys- physically by the operation. And what I saw is, you know, the teenage ones were basically chasing each other around and playing like you see kids in a schoolyard. And a, a lot of the adults were actually mating in the nets. So, yeah. you know, kind of, <laughs> yeah, kind of takes true. away the stress factor when <laughs> they're mating. So... Yeah, that was some pretty interesting photography that I took that uh, that made a lot of waves against some of the environmental groups that were, you know, trying to rally their cause to uh, to get these guys to stop fishing these dolphins. Well, Tommy, I'm sure you saw uh, a lot of the same thing happening, not necessarily the mating, but obviously the care that the, the vessels that were under the U.S. flag were doing to protect the dolphins. Was the same care being done by vessels that were under other foreign flags? No, the foreign flag fleet, they, they really didn't care much about it. And you have to remember that the American commercial fishermen in, on both coasts and in the Gulf, I mean, were under great deal of scrutiny. We are regulated. We have pingers. Even today, it's even more and more rules and guidelines. And, um I mean, we could get into the whole thing of why the fleet left, and for me personally, the fleet left because a lot of the owners didn't want to spend the money to battle what was going on and to prove that we were doing the right thing to save these marine mammals. And, and I mean, we were literally, like Bill said, we were jumping in the net, and 
you know, Bill, I'm sure you've seen it or probably happened to you. There is nothing worse than getting hit dead center by a 150-pound tuna swimming at 40 knots, you know. And <laughs> you know, it knocks the air out of you, and you start sure. sinking, and hopefully your partner's coming down to grab you by your hair and pull you back up so you can get some air. But, I mean, we were jumping in the nets, and unfortunately there were a few fatalities of guys that were getting bit by sharks. And I lost a cousin at sea. Uh, who was bit and he ended up bleeding out on the deck. Um, the hard part about that was, you know, his father was the captain of the boat. And so we, were, we weren't the bad guys, and, and it's the same thing today. The American fishermen are not the bad guys. We're highly regulated with everything that we do. But um, I think that if the owners, instead of spending money on their fancy cars and their big houses and all that, would have paid a little more attention to what was going on, we could have beat that and still have a fleet because today – a lot of our boats are down flying an Ecuadorian flag, and it's you know it's the old west down there, man. It's game on, and they're going out and they're fishing whatever they want, how they want, and it's just unfortunate uh, that that turn of event is what forced the American fleet to to go offshore and switch flags. Bill, what would you think was the nail in the coffin uh, for the uh, the U.S. fleet that that you saw? Because I'm sure during the time that you were on the boats, you began to see. Uh, uh, the demise of the fleet, a lot of erosion of, of boats either going out of business or regulations getting so stringent that uh, the guys were saying, hey, th- this isn't worth it anymore. I can't, I can't do it. Yeah, I saw, you know, what I saw was um, when the canneries left, and just like Tommy had said, I mean, and you you had mentioned as well that the, the tuna industry was, you know, was a huge you know, a huge uh, um, financial, um, you know, generator in San Diego and even out there in San Pedro with the canneries there. And, I mean, when you think of not just, you know, bringing fish back to a cannery and selling it, but think of the fuel. I mean, those boats would leave port with 160, 180, 200,000 gallons of fuel just to go out yeah. and make a trip. Just to make and you've one got, trip. And, and oh, they, yeah. And when and Tommy's talking 300 boats in the fleet, the ones that were certificated for fishing porpoise are about 120. So the biggest ones, the big hundred, you know, the 120, the biggest ones were, you know, a big boat back then was a 1,200-ton per sander. Small one was maybe a 650-ton per sander. Well, that's a lot of fuel, a lot of food. Those guys are making, you know, three, four, five trips a year. I mean, do the math on that, right? And then think uh, about, some, think, Bill, think about the guys that, think of guys like Jerry Vieira, you know, the Blackie that would provide us with all our clothes and the guys that would make the sandwiches yeah. when we were working on net and, you know, everybody in between that, that brought down the groceries, that brought down the, the booze, that brought down the cigarettes, that brought down uh, the ship Chandlery there on India Street, you know, Harbor Marine, and uh, just everybody and everywhere in Zalezi's fuel dock. And, you know, you had Babe down there at 76th underneath the Coronado Bridge and Chevron and everybody. And, and there was so much money being generated in San Diego, and then everything just kind of disappeared. And was it the canneries yeah. that decided to relocate uh, what, offshore yeah, or what? what uh, well, Bill? what it was, at that time, you had Puerto Rico, right, and you had um, Samoa, which are both American um, territories. So the government gave those canneries, you know, Van Camps and uh, Starkist, they gave them really inexpensive um, uh, loans to create their canneries in Puerto Rico. So... Yeah. Uh, you had van camps over in uh, uh, Ponce, and uh, Mayaguez is where uh, Starkist was. Starkist, so, yeah. And then uh, I can't remember which cannery went over to uh, Samoa, American Samoa, but 
so that basically the government established canneries in uh, you know Puerto Rico and Samoa, and those the, the canneries left San Diego. And once they left San Diego, it was so much tougher for guys like Tommy, who were born and raised in San Diego, to sit there and be away from their families and their homes that much. You know, it's different when you come back in from every trip, you come back home, you're home for a couple of weeks, you unload the catch, you, you reload the boat, you take off again. But when you're not doing that anymore, you're only seeing your family a few weeks a year, it just made it really tough. And, and so a lot of the, the uh, jobs went foreign, and the boats themselves, with you know, with the, the environmental hassles they were getting and just all the bad press they were getting, and they didn't, you know, they're not media experts. They, don't, they didn't know how to fight these environmental groups, which have that down to a science, you know. And uh, it was really sad. And then a lot of the boats started fishing, as Tommy had mentioned, the concentrations of skipjack uh, over in the Western Pacific. And there was certainly a learning curve to catching those fish because the uh, thermoclines were much, much deeper. You had to have the nets that were sinking much faster. You could purse much quicker just to get around those schools. But, you know, they, they, they picked up the, the ball on that and, and made it happen. But a lot of the fleet went to the Western Pacific. Other big owners like Ed Gann just sold his boats to foreign fleets like Venezuela and Mexico, and they just kind of got out of it, you know, and a lot of the jobs left uh, San Diego is what I really saw, the demise of the fleet. Yeah. And, um, yeah, then the canneries got in bed with the environmental groups in 1991 with their Dolphin Safe policy, which was a huge corporate decision and a huge moneymaker uh, where they, you know, could claim some kind of an environmental victory um, and but in, in the reality of it was was you know really affecting the uh, the pelagic ecology of uh, the sharks and other fish that were associated with uh, flotsam in the Eastern Pacific Ocean because now you're no longer catching these porpoise and harvesting you know yellowfin tuna from say oh maybe oh uh, eighty pound to a three hundred pound fish yeah. now you're harvesting your catch off of flotsam and your own fads you're creating. And you're killing a bunch of little two-pound to six-pound yellowfin, big eye, and skipjack, which have never spawned before. Yeah, Tommy, you and, got a comment? Uh, you know, you know that, I got to say, that I gotta say you know, hold on a second here, Joe. This is a pretty amazing history for all of our listeners that you don't understand here. Uh, I'd love to do more of this because it is really, really informative. Van Camp's made fish sticks back when, and and. Chicken of the sea tuna, you know, they've been around forever and still around now. Uh, but those were the big, big influences in our arena back at that time. Mm-hmm. And and the way that things have changed since then and how it came to this point, this is pretty interesting stuff. To, to get the history of the fishing industry like this, you haven't heard this anywhere else but here and this is pretty great information um i can't i i, I think it's great when they're getting out here uh, and having the knowledge that that's been put out is just phenomenally good we don't even have oh, yeah, well, we don't thanks, even man. have starkist anymore it's owned by the koreans i mean we don't even have an american cannery anymore uh anywhere on american soil that's one of the big brands i mean i have a personal pack tuna called catalina choice which is a long-line harvested American flag vessel offloaded here in San Diego, and it's canned up in Oregon. Um, the fact of the matter is is that we, 
and Bill, you were there when we were we were taking on the foreign crew members and stuff, and we were showing them how to do it. And then along came the 200-mile limit, and then, you know, everybody switched flags, and then pretty soon we trained more and more and more. And the only guys that had jobs on the boats were paper holders, whether they were the right. captain, the navigator, or the chief engineer. Or maybe a helicopter pilot. <laughs> oh, yeah, the helicopter pilot. Boy, were there some crazy individuals or what? <laughs> Out of their minds, all ex-Vietnam crazy. Oh, my gosh. And some of those guys were, uh, I remember one time one guy took me up, and I, when I hit the deck, I was like, I will never, ever fly with you again. That guy was good. Well, Tommy, I know it was dangerous. There was a guy named Alan that was on the Independence with us uh, a couple of years back, and he was one of the helicopter pilots along with his dad was one of the guys, too. And he said he would he'd crash a couple of times in, in the ocean out there and just barely made it a couple of times out. I mean that was a tough, tough bunch of guys. It was, it was a, a tough life. Ball game. And Tommy could could the guys make a decent living off of <laughs> a commercial tuna fishing? Not only the owners, but actually the guys that that put their health and their lives in jeopardy by going out and chasing these fish. Oh yeah, back in the day, you could you know your first house took five years to pay off. You were done, but um, there is definitely money to be made. There's still money to be made if it's done right, you know. Uh, but I, I, Bill, you know this just as much as I do. You know our super saners. I think the Apollo uh, was one of the big ones, carried a little over two thousand tons, and we called them super saners. But now they have mega saners that are coming out of France and Spain. That these vessels are just. They make our yeah. super saners look like a little dinghy. It's like the difference between the sport fishing boat Independence and the Pronto, you know? Well, yeah. Well, well, now, that's well said. Now, only that, now, now you've got the, the Dutch that have this uh, uh, saning technique uh, that is called pulsing that is extremely devastating. Tommy, are you or Bill, are you familiar with either one of those? Procedures. What they're doing is they're sending a pulse, electronic pulse, through um, way, uh, wires that are skimming along the bottom of the ocean, just above it. And so there's a little bit. It's a it's a new way to catch fish. It's a new way of harvesting without devastating the floor bed. Really not sure yet. It's still going on. Um, it's catching up a lot of uh, media attention right now. And and the, the sad thing is, is that if it were to be working in favor, um, if the you know who's ever got the right amount of money can sit there and have negative press about it. So we still need to figure it out. Bill, would sure. you the last day uh, the, of the uh, of your time as an observer on the boat when you were leaving the vessel uh, and what you knew what was the last time? What was going through your mind at that time? From my very last trip or on every trip when I get back? The last trip you were on. I mean, obviously, well, well, you know, no. your time yeah. was coming. Yeah. Well, go I started, I saw it go from, I saw it go from a heavy porpoise fishery, which the government supported. See, that's just it. The government is never against these guys fishing porpoise. In fact, most of the scientists at Scripps, because that's where our data would get, would, uh, was getting uh, processed, right there in uh, San Diego at Scripps Institute of Oceanography at the uh, NOAA, um, uh, office right there above Black's Beach. So we'd bring all our data back and go through computers. It would kick out, uh, you know, a, a multitude of different data. But, I mean, the PhDs at Scripps, we knew so much about the recruitment of the yellowfin and skipjack in the East Pacific Ocean, which is one of the richest bodies of water in the world. You know, so you're talking about um, 
one of the, the reason why there's such a huge concentrations of marine mammals in that area is because there's so much nutrient in that area. Yeah. I mean, you go to parts of the Caribbean and Atlantic, it's just crystal, crystal blue, blue water because there's no life in it. <laughs> you know, blue right. water, green water, there's a lot of life. And so um, we're, you're talking about one of the most productive areas of, of the ocean. And, the, and the, the, the PhDs I worked with were some of the, were some some of the you know the the, the, the finest um, uh, fishery scientists in the world, and they saw that the uh, the population of yellowfin tuna, the recruitment in the eighties was was um, really high, because the fish they were harvesting in a primarily porpoise fishery, because back in around the mid eighties to the late eighties, the price of premium tuna was very high. I think it was like twelve eighty a ton. And um, and so most of the owners were telling their skippers, "Look, man, I need I need premium elephant on this boat. So I want you guys to target uh, porpoise and and um, you know bring back these beautiful porpoise fish." Hey and, guys, we got to take a break right now. Uh, oh, okay. Can you stay on for one more uh, round? Yeah, sure. All right. Hey, we've got Tommy Gomes with us. We've got Bill Boyce. We're talking about what happened to the U.S. tuna industry. And if we get a chance here in the next segment, we're going to find out. What's left of it and what's happening out there commercially? So stay tuned. Stan, Wendy, and I will be back with Tommy Gomes and Bill Boyce after these messages. Are you ready to sell your current boat and upgrade in preparation for the 2017 fishing season? It's sure to be one for the bucks. I'm Zach Zorn and a broker for Kessler Yachts located in San Diego. As one of the largest and most reputable brokerages on the West Coast, I can assure that your boat will be sold in a timely manner or that your dream boat will be found. If you want to sell your boat or looking to purchase one, call Zach Zorn at Kessler Yachts, 760-815-8866, so that your name can be added to our long list of satisfied buyers and sellers. That's Zach Zorn, 760-815-8866. Hi, this is BSS record holder Dean Rojas. El Cajon Ford helped me when I got started in my career, and let them help you with a new F-Series Ford truck. And remember, nobody beats El Cajon Ford. If you're serious about your fishing, choosing the right tackle is one of the most important decisions you'll ever make. Iserline makes premium fishing lines including monofilament, Dacron, Spectra, fluorocarbon, battle-tested harnesses, and top-angler-tested Iserline tools and accessories. Iserline premium fishing products are created to provide you with the ultimate in strength, dependability, durability, high abrasion resistance, low stretch, and high quality. All Iserline products are 100% guaranteed against manufacturing defects. You just can't buy better value. Iserline will replace or repair at their option. No questions asked if you're not pleased with any of their product. Catch what you've been missing. Quality guaranteed. Every serious angler knows that a quality hook is an important part of their arsenal. Gamakatsu hooks are made from high-grade carbon steel, specially heat-treated to make them light and extra strong, but not brittle. Gamakatsu ring hooks are made with a one-piece ring, no welds, no weak spots, a very smooth-moving ring. Gamakatsu offers a huge variety of hooks for all types of fishing. Live bait hooks, both light and heavy-duty, to four extra strong. Circle hooks, tuna hooks, ring hooks, tuna doubles, and many more. Don't waste your next fishing trip on a cheap hook. Get Gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now. The warm weather is here and our lakes and rivers are brimming. Just remember, if you love California and you love to boat, please wear your life jacket. And make sure everyone with you puts one on, too. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. This portion of Rod and Reel Radio is brought to you by the Rockley's Fish Release System. Now you can quickly and easily release fish suffering from barotrauma back to the depths they were caught. Look or ask for the Rockley's at your local fishing tackle dealer. 
Hey, welcome back to Ron Real Radio. Stan Vandenberg's here, Wendy Toshihara. We're with Bill Boyce and Tommy Gomes, and I can't tell you, our phones have just lit up and messages saying, hey, tell Bill Boyce to say hello to this person. Tell Tommy to say hello to this person. Uh, uh, Manuel Freitas from the Constitution. He's, someone said, hey, you've got, Bill has to remember that because he was an observer on the boat. Yeah, absolutely. Unbelievable. Freitas, that's classic. Yeah, Tommy, you had a question for Bill. I did, I, Bill, uh, Dave Rudy's down at Galapagos right now, or Galapagos, so depending on what side of the boat you grew up on. He just sent me a picture of a big saner on anchor just now while I'm on the show. It was it was weird. But, um, you know, as our planet gets smaller, you know, we've got to figure out ways that we have to stop this over-harvesting and the influx of all this foreign fish that's coming in, and, and it's just getting really, really tough all the way around. It's a shame that we we watch such an industry such as the tuna industry here in San Diego um, disappear and the, and everybody switch to foreign fat, flags. Now, you look at the Azteca fleet out of Mazatlan, and you'll recognize a lot of those boats because and nobody had nicer, sexier-looking tuna boats than the United States. I mean, those vessels were just lean and mean, and they sat low in the water, and they were beautiful. But... We are over-harvesting, and we are doing some damage, but we're, we're almost at that tipping point where we really need to start paying attention and, and stop this influx of the foreign fisheries that are coming in because uh, 87% or something like that high number that's consumed in this country in seafood is imported, and out of that 87%, uh, over 90% of that's coming in not inspected by the FDA. And, and the American guys that are trying to do the right things they're the ones that are suffering from it, not only from price gouging, fuels, permits going up and everything, but also from our environmental groups that just don't want to pay attention to what's really going on. It's almost like if our backyard looks good, who cares what the neighbor's yard looks like? And there's devastation going on all the way down the coast. And if you if you see what's going on in Ecuador, it's crazy fishing what's going on down there. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah. Bill? Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, you're right. And, and you know what's so funny is the environmental groups, at first, you know, they, didn't even, they weren't even really, they didn't even have their pulse on this dolphin issue. They were all trying to save elephants and rhinos and snow leopards. And when nobody was scratching checks for those animals, you know, they all of a sudden found the dolphin and realized what a cuddle factor it had with the public. Yeah. And they all dove on that dolphin issue. And the saddest part of that was, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to inform the, 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 the American public how many, you know, how many, how many dolphins are dying in this fishery, and they skewed the numbers so bad, and the public never got the, 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 you know, the, the right story on that. And um, it, was, you know, it, oh, it, was, it, was, it was just pathetic. And so, yeah, that, um, was, that was that time when Sam LeBud came out with that, that film that showed those dead porpoise, and that wasn't even an American boat. That was a Panamanian vessel with full Panamanian crew. Yeah, and no porpoise panel, and they didn't back down, and and then they were asking him, oh, is this was a typical tuna trip? Oh, absolutely, it's tuna timber. He was out for six months, and they came back in with like about a third of a load. I mean, that was a very you know non-typical trip that he because because he had gone out there you know undercover and got the story and the footage. It was pathetic, and that's that's right when the American fishermen they should have put their foot down immediately and made their own. And I was dating a gal at the time who was a TV producer, and um, 
I said, look, we need to make a film that will really, really show the true story on this thing. And we met with a bunch of the Tuna families, you know, the, the Medinas and, and, uh, and uh, Ed Gann and all these folks. And they're like, yeah, yeah, this is great, this is great, this is great. And they wouldn't throw one penny at it. No, <laughs> not one. Yeah. But they're going to Washington, D.C. with their mink skulls and their Cadillacs and thinking, you've got to be kidding me. You guys so had it. You Cadillac had, you every finally year. had an opportunity, yeah. and you just blew it. It's yeah, sad. but we, we'll, put a, we'll put a Bell Jet Ranger helicopter on the boat every year, and we'll buy new Cadillacs and stuff. And when the kid turns 16, we'll take him down and get him a new Camaro. We won't get him yeah, a pickup yeah. truck so he can use it on the boat. We're going to get him a Camaro or a Corvette. Guys, let's, fa <laughs> let's fast forward to today. Uh, uh, the commercial uh, fishing fleet in the United States. Tommy, you probably know as, as well as anybody because you're dealing with them almost every day. What, what do we have left here? Well, we don't have a whole lot left. I think we have 137 or 132 commercial licenses uh, between Mission Bay and San Diego. Of course, we have a couple of longline boats coming in now. Lobster fishery is real big. We have offshore drift net fleet, uh, several boats uh, registered out of San Diego. And, again, the same thing's going on with our offshore drift net swordfish guys that's going on with the porpoise fleet back in the day. You know, we have pingers, we have observers, we have tracking devices, we have to have our net out of the water by a certain time, and we have all this stuff. And those guys that are doing it right are the ones that are getting hammered. And when we should really be looking at the boats that aren't aren't kept up, that are going out fishing, that are breaking down, that their hydraulic system collapses, and they leave their net in the water for a two days or three days and it keeps fishing and it's killing everything and they're trying to get their hydraulics on but we're not looking at that we're, we're looking at everybody but we need to look at the guys that are specifically spending money on their rigs keeping their rigs ship shape there's a reason why they say ship shape the guys that are spending money on the nets that are turning in the right data that are doing everything possible to do the right thing that when the whales are migrating that they're moving another 70 80 miles out instead of being in the path of the whales that you know nobody wants to kill a whale no not only is it you know it's just something that a human doesn't want to do but they're a pain in the butt to get out of the net when they're dead i mean they're, they're a pain to get out when they're alive but <laughs> you know uh, the american fishermen are dead yeah the, i mean the american fishermen are getting beat up bill just mentioned uh in this last segment about the basking sharks and stuff. And I had a buddy of mine send me pictures. Uh, Bill, I can send them to you. I think you might have seen them because I put a couple of them up. But um, there was a Ecuadorian boat uh, made a set on a basking shark, and they're the most docile creatures in the water. And you just jump on them with a deck brush and start scrubbing them down, and they go into this trance, and you cut the cork line from the net to the corks and you pull the net down underneath their chin and they just slide right out real nice and easy these guys sacked it up killed it they had to chop it up into pieces and get it on on deck and this is a 60 foot whale 40 foot whale you know and it and there's no reason for any of this stuff but yet you know we're going to sit there and point fingers at the american fishermen which is you know we're just trying to make a living and nobody wants to kill the last anything tommy i noticed when i go to catalina offshore products now uh where you know, when we used to see you uh, when you first started out, when we'd ask for a fish fillet and you'd go back in the freezer and you'd zip it up for us and we'd, we'd take it home in a plastic bag, now you have nice refrigerator areas, you've got freezer areas, you've got a great display of fish. But one thing I noticed, there seems to be a larger variety of fish there. There are new species that I'm not uh, familiar with. For instance, uh, it, it hasn't been that long that 
you know, OPA, that you see actually OPA in the refrigerator cases. What are some of the, the new fish that are coming along that are available, at least in your market, that are consumable and sustainable? Well, you know, the, the OPA is a bycatch for the long-line big-eye tuna fishery, and, and if it comes on the boat, uh, you've got to bring it home, whether it's $0.05 cents or $5 a pound. You've got to bring it home, home meaning to the U.S. because you're a U.S. flag boat. Um, and my program that I've been preaching for the last 13 years is utilization of the whole fish. Use the whole fish. It doesn't come out of the ocean in a box. This is not the Gordon's Fisherman commercial. You know, uh, we need to, the fish comes out, it, and fishermen go out all over, and they risk their lives to bring in this product and to treat it with respect. And so we need to utilize and eat the whole fish, not just the top loin or not just the filet. And and we need to bring that full cycle again. We, I'm the first generation of a TV dinner, and since then our food's gone downhill. Um, you know, and our diets are bad, and we're overweight, and we're diabetic, and all this stuff's going on. So we need to learn how to eat right again. And one of the things that I tell people is that you don't kill a, a pig to make bacon, although I love bacon, and I know everybody loves bacon, but you harvest that whole animal for the spirit of the animal and for the respect of not only the fishermen but also for the fish. Bill, you spend a lot you of know, time on... Tommy, I, I actually saw you do... A, a complete fillet of of an opa, and I don't know if it's on YouTube or on Facebook or whatever else, but you you went through the whole opa, how to cut it, how to how to keep all of the components, and how how to cook it on online. It was a great piece, and I don't know where that is, but yeah, it was fun to watch. You, and I I learned a lot, and I've been in this industry forever. If you Google if you Google Tommy Gomes opa. That'll come up, and that's just part one of a four-part series that we're going to be doing on that. And it was really funny because when it hit 20 million views, my my great niece came up to me, and she said, Uncle, you're viral. And I'm like, I'm not viral. I'm not sick. I feel okay. (laughs) And she's looking at me, and I go, what is she talking about, viral? And my niece, her mother, had to say, yeah, your OPA video is viral, which means it went all over the world. Bill, you spend a lot of time down in Baja, and I know you probably get involved with a lot of the commercial fishermen over there, too. Do you, do you feel that the Mexican government is becoming more aware of, uh, you know, what resources they have around uh, uh, in their fisheries, and they're trying to do something to help maintain it? Absolutely. What you've got, you've got two huge, huge marine biology programs yeah. in universities just in Baja alone. You've got one in Ensenada, and you've got one in La Paz. And there's a lot of really, really uh, quality biologists coming out of those universities and getting into, you know, some of, these, uh, some of these government bodies. The thing is, though, unfortunately, Mexico being Mexico, you still have a lot of, uh, you know, just the way they do business down there, right? It's still... Uh, it's still at the hands, you know, the, the people are paid off and things, you know, and things just don't get managed in many respects. But at least now, compared to, say, 20 years ago, you've got some really, really qualified people, and uh, there is a push to really uh, to try to manage their seas. Yeah. What I do see, though, is some of the co-ops um, um, down in Baja in the Abirojos area, which are absolutely extraordinary 
extremely well managed, and it has nothing to do with a government agency. It has everything to do with them managing themselves. Yes. And that yeah, co-op is mind-boggling yeah. for abalone and lobster. Um, you know, they know how they're marketing it now over to Asia because now that dirt road, that 55-mile dirt road that used to be a six-hour drive just to get to the main highway is now paved, yeah. so they don't have to sell those fish in Ensenada. Now they can take that fish right to Los Angeles and fly it someplace. So, and Abreu is one of the most fun places to fish in this whole wide world, if you know what amazing. you're doing. Amazing. Yeah. I, I got a question for Tommy before we get, because we're getting close to the top of the hour. Really you quick, to Stan. Say what? Really quick. Really quick, I wanted to ask Tommy about he 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 fished Clarion and and the Hurricane way back when. What's the difference between now and then? What were you fishing back then, and what are they fishing now? Uh, we were fishing real shallow. We were fishing with suspenders and pulling three fifties, three seventy fives, four hundred and twenty five pound yellowfin tuna. We were fishing at nighttime in and along those islands. And I remember seeing uh, when the Marauders first came out. We were getting big tuna in the net with marauders hanging out of them, and these fish were, you know, 350-pound fish. We were like, there ain't no way these sport guys going to land these cows. <laughs> <laughs> that was then? That, this was, is the... that was 25 years ago. Hey, guys, this well, hour was, has gone by. was making. It, this hour has gone by way, way too quick, and we're going to have to get down the road. Bill, if people want to stay in contact with you, ask you questions, or find out what you're doing in Baja, like I sit there and do, and I, I just salivate at some of the things you're getting into, how's the best way to stay in contact with you? Yeah, Facebook's good. You can just hit me on Facebook, uh, Bill Boyce, or go to the um, our Facebook for the, our TV series down there, which is called Destination Baja Sur. S-U-R, right, Baja South. And um, so we're in our second season of that. We're editing it now and uh, won a couple of Telly Awards in season one. And it'll be coming out on the Pursuit Channel, World Fishing Network, Aqua TV, uh, Wild TV Africa, Amazon Prime. So you can see it in a lot of different places. But they can just go to Destination Baja Sur on Facebook and, uh, yeah, ask me anything you want. Bill, we're going to have to. Great job, by the way, buddy. I can't believe. Well, we we see each other down in Baja a lot, but Billy, you've done a great job. Bill, thanks, brother. It's always good seeing you, man. Stan, I go fishing you again sometime. We've done some TV and had a great time. Bill, will you take a rain check to come on back so we can talk about some of the other things you're involved with? Oh yeah, man. No worries. We could split another three hours just on this subject. But uh, yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) Tommy, Tommy. Besides YouTube, uh, where can people get a hold of you to ask questions or to see what's available at Catalina Offshore Products when it comes to sustainable seafood and U.S. caught uh, product and uh, all the other fine things that you do? Yeah, you can catch me down at Catalina Offshore. You can find me, Tommy the Fishmonger, on Facebook or just Tommy Gomes. Real quick, Bill, how is that sea deck stuff from uh, Ken Gardone and those boys down there? You liking that? I'm loving it. Oh, my God. I just made my first trip to Mexico with it. It's like walking on pillows the whole time you're on your boat. <laughs> yeah, and, nice. Uh, you know, my concern was that you know blood would get into that foam, but it doesn't. That no. stuff's really impervious to it. It's an amazing product. Nice. All right. Well, guys, nice, Tommy Gomes. Nice. Tommy Gomes, Bill Boyce, we're going to have to stick a fork in this segment over here, but Bill, I can't I can't thank you enough for taking some of your Sunday to be with us. And Tommy, you're here from a chili cook off, so I'm I don't even want to ask you what that was all about, a fishmonger, but it had to do something with fish. You broke down, you made it on over here with two minutes to spare. Thanks a lot, Tommy. Anytime. You're welcome. It's yeah. my pleasure. Thanks, thank man. you, Tommy. Thank See you, Billy.
All right. Bye, hey, Wendy. Hey, uh, this is Stan, Wendy, and John. We've got to take a break right now, but if we can make the connection, coming up next, pro angler Hank Parker is going to be with us, so stay tuned. There's still a lot more Rod and Reel Radio to come. You can count on El Cajon Ford, as so many Southern Californians have for years. El Cajon Ford has the cars and trucks you can count on, like the all-new Fusion and Escape, Edge, Explorers, and more. And now, Fiestas with 38 MPG and Focus with 40 miles per gallon highway, plus C-Max Energy with up to 42 highway EPA estimates. El Cajon Ford has them now. Shop online at ElCajonFord.com. Choose from hundreds of your favorite F-Series trucks, too. El Cajon Ford knows trucks, no matter what you're hauling or towing, for a great weekend of fishing or for some fun in the desert. Now get special savings on every F-Series truck in stock, 150s, 250s, 350s, at El Cajon Ford. We have commercial trucks, too, including the all-new Transit Connect. Finally, a commercial van with great mileage, helping your business get moving again. El Cajon Ford, worth the short drive from anywhere in Southern California, Broadway and East Main and El Cajon, or online anytime, anywhere at ElCajonFord.com. He's not just my fishing buddy. After 30 years, he's a brother, and I'd sure hate to lose him. His bass boat's got nothing to do with it. So I make sure both of us wear a life jacket. Save the ones you love, even if they don't own a fancy boat. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Quantum Fishing's got something for everybody. From the smallest angler to the oldest veteran, we can get you out there fishing with the greatest reels on the market today. From the all-new for 2016 Icon PT, to the Tour Mag, to the brand-new redesigned Smoke Reel, we've got something for everyone in your family. Have some fun. Take a kid fishing. They're the future of our sport. Quantum, we are performance-tuned. You can get your Quantum products at anglersarsenal.com or anglersarsenal in La Mesa at 619-466-8355. Attention Rod and Reel Radio listeners. Be sure to check out the Code Group mobile app. You can listen to the Rod and Reel Radio show live along with show archives without internet access. The Code Group app has all kinds of cool features for fishermen including daily Southern California saltwater reports, weather reports, episodes of Inside Sport Fishing, Marine Traffic, and much more. Get the free Code Group mobile app by texting the word REEL, R-E-E-L, to 90407, or enter the words Code Group in the App Store on your smartphone. It's a big deal, you know. I've always wanted to be on Rod and Reel Radio Line. <laughs> <laughs> I won the Bassmaster Classic. I did a, a McDonald's commercial, but now I know I've made it. I fulfilled my dream. <laughs> that is just absolutely awesome. Stan Vandenberg, Wendy Toshahar, and myself, Hopalong John Cassidy, we want to welcome you back to this second hour of Ron Real Radio. Guys, was that absolutely the fastest hour you've ever spent in your life with uh, Bill Boyce and uh, Tommy Gomes? I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is going to be a, a fast show, too, because we've got our next guest on. He's pro angler from, I don't know, I, 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 I don't know how long he's been fishing. He's been at it for a long time. He is, Sorry. He is to pro angling what Jello is to Jello and Bosco is to chocolate syrup. But let's welcome him onto the show, pro angler Hank Parker. Hank, welcome back to Ron Real Radio. Hey, guys. How we doing? Hey, we... You know, Hank Stan Vanderberg here, uh, when... 
I don't know if you heard that little intro that you did back when. You didn't know it was an intro, but back when when we had you on at the Fred Hall show, you and Martha were heading up to your room to have a piece of pie or something like that, and we intersected, and you ended up doing the show with us back then. But but that was a uh, a wonderful moment in history of the show, and and I went on to be able to be a, a guide uh, for for Hank at Lake Casitas a little later on with. Uh, Little Joe Uribe, Byron Velvick, and uh, uh, Mike Long, and and we had another great time <laughs> at, at that point in time. What a group of guys that is. And, yes, I knew I had arrived when I was on uh, RoddenRealRadio.com. Man, I had made it. <laughs> Thank you, Hank. <laughs> you know, I, I think you kind of made it before we had uh, you on Rod Real Radio because – you go back a long way, you know. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you started, because today there's a whole group of fishermen out there that they know Hank Parker, they know the name, they see him on television, they know that he fishes, but they may not know some of the particulars that got Hank to where he was to be the person that he is today. So tell us a little bit about the beginnings, if you will, quickly. Well, first of all, you keep referring, referring to me as a senior statement. I'm still in my 40s. I'm 40, 24. So, I'm, <laughs> so you, you have seen the 24th anniversary of your 40th birthday, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, but it's, it's been fun, man. It, it, uh, you know, I started out as just a kid when I was uh, 16 years old. I got a subscription to Bassmaster Magazine and I knew that's what I wanted to do for a living. I never did really want to have a real job. Uh, I, I didn't like poverty, so I had to do something to earn a living. I thought fishing is the way I want to go. And it oh, has man. been a fabulous career. I just, uh, I've been so blessed and so fortunate to, uh, to achieve a lot of goals. You know, I always wanted to win the Classic. I wanted to be the first guy to win the Grand Slam. I wanted to be the first guy to win Angler of the Year and the Classic. And I was able to pull all that stuff off, so it's pretty cool. Well, you know, some of the people that were really influential in your life to, to get you going in that direction, let me throw a couple of names out, out your way. First of all, uh, Blake Honeycutt. What, what did Blake do when it came to your early days of fishing? Who is that now? Uh, Blake, uh, Blake uh, Honeycutt. Oh, Blake Honeycutt. Oh, it's incredible. Blake was from Hickory, North Carolina, and he uh, he was a member of the Buck Perry. And if you remember Buck Perry, sure. he used to make trolling spoons to determine the depth way before we had depth sounders. So he would find contours and drop-offs and ledge and deep water structure with his trolling spoons, and Blake lived just down the road. They were both from Hickory, North Carolina. Blake lived just down the road, and he became a master at uh, disguised underwater structure offshore, and uh, he just changed fishing. I mean, Blake was incredible. When Tom Mann came out with the Hummingbird Depth Finder, those guys set the world on fire catching those fish out there on offshore structure. Wow. And then you also credit uh, Forrest Wood for really being a, a, a guiding force in your life to kind of setting you straight and, and putting your mind in, in such a direction that you could be uh, as competitive as you were. Forrest was one of those guys that uh, he was an industry leader 
he was more than all of that. He was an incredible fisherman. He was an industry leader, and he was a support person. When when you were on uh, a part of the Forest Wood family, the Ranger Boat family, uh, man, he supported you in every way, morally, physically, financially. Uh, it, it was just such a big shot in my arm. I made a proposal to him, and uh, he didn't take it back. He didn't ask for a written copy. He looked me square in the eyes and said, uh, Hank, I can do that, and shook my hand, and we operated that uh, on that handshake uh, for many, many, many years until he eventually sold Ranger Boat Company. But you have stayed with Ranger Boats and Mercury, and, you know, in this day where you get a lot of the pros that they seem like they flip around, you've had some long-term sponsors that have supported you in the fishing industry and then other ventures that you've gone into. Well, we, you know, it's a lot to being loyal, and it's a lot to be said to have a relationship with a company rather than a sponsor. And I've always taken it serious, and when somebody tries to help me or support me, I want to reciprocate. I want to be able to help them and support them. I remember several years I ran a Mercury motor back in the gas shortage days when things were really tough. I ran Mercury Outboards for no money at all. Uh, they, they were in a very big pickle, and uh, we, we tried to help them every way we could, promote and advertise and market, and uh, didn't ran several years and didn't get paid. But it's a commitment, and since that time, that commitment, they've reciprocated to me. It's, a, it's really good to work with companies and mean it, you know, and I think – Ultimately, if you're going to have credibility with the consumer, you've got to be real and you've got to be honest. And it's hard to be real and be honest if you take the best deal going, uh, you know, just because there's a few more dollars there. You've got to believe in your products, and I've always been fortunate enough to be able to pull that off. You know, when you're talking about uh, companies to work with, because I, I – Teamed up with Ranger. Actually, they asked, asked me to team up in 1982, and, and to work with back then it was Mildred, and I know you know who Mildred was. And then going to Kim Ott. But the relationships you have with with the factory people makes a huge difference. And I've never changed boats. I mean, I, it, that's the only boat I've ever run since, and Mercury Motors ever since. But the loyalty well, you don't always see. Anymore. That's where I'm at. But, you know, they got all that from Forrest. Forrest built the footers, afford the footers, and the foundation. And that was who he was. And he led by example. There wasn't any job that he, he wouldn't do at the plant. And there wasn't anybody that was a lesser person. It, it didn't matter if you were a two- or three-time world champion or you were a guy fishing your first bass tournament ever. Or if you never even fished a bass tournament. Forrest Wood treated you with respect. And that's just the way he treated people. And that's that's the way that company was founded. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Okay. yeah for, very for awesome. Some, for some of you people <laughs> that just, you know, you don't know some of the statistics on Hank, just to brush over a few of them, Hank was the first fisherman to win a Bassmaster Classic and then also to win Angler of the Year. He's qualified for the Classic 14 times. He's won two of them, but... Hank, the, the Hank Parker of today and the Hank Parker way back then when you started fishing, you know, Bassmasters, 
kind of a different person. You you got the title of being one of the first power fishermen that was on the circuit. And what what did they mean by that? Well, you know, it was in the era that a lot of things were being pioneered. Today, these guys were so incredibly good. I respect those anglers out there just a tremendous amount. But we pioneered that. You know, we, we, we're the first guys to run 100 miles one way. You know, I remember when Gary Klein got a bladder tank and ran from Wild Weep to Bullfrog on Tau, you know, 103. That's exactly miles. correct. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, there was a lot of pioneering back in those days. And so I was aggressive, and I liked to cover a lot of water. And I'd get a big spinner bait and, uh, uh, and just hit place to place to place to place and run that motor on 24 high that was before 36 or 72 volt. And we'd just run, and I'd have four batteries in that boat where I could switch my troll motors at the half of the day where I could stay on that full 24 all day long and just go, go, go. You know, and you talk about being aggressive. There's a story that for almost two and a half years when Bassmasters would let guys out in the order that they lined up, you'd be the first guy out there at 3.30 in the morning for maybe a blast-off at 7 o'clock. I took off first every tournament that I fished. (laughs) except once, and I was in New York, and I got in line to take off at 6. I got in line at 15 minutes after 3, and Harold Allen beat me in line. He got in line at 3 o'clock. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, crazy be... times. Well, also, they you know. changed that rule, though. That really helped me out of getting some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you uh, you know. But there, there's always a lot of stories about you. You know, I know you yourself weren't superstitious, but man, you worked on the uh, the superstitions of a lot of uh, uh, anglers. And I know there was a an incident with you with Paul Elias that was uh, pretty big in the Bassmaster Classic. Tell us about that. Oh, Paul's so superstitious is crazy, and I'm not superstitious at all. You know, and Paul. He just, he drew 13 one year, and he, he swears that cost him the classic. So he was leading the classic going into the last day on the Alabama River in Montgomery, and he was a wad of nerves, you know, and I was wishing him luck. And he said, I just don't need any black cats. I don't need any 13s. So I said, let me see your hat. Unbeknownst to him, I took a Sharpie and wrote number 13 inside of his hat. <laughs> <laughs> and when he won that tournament, I took his hat off and I said, I'll show you that superstition, a bunch of hocus-pocus right here. Number he said, if I'd have lost that tournament and I'd have found that number, I'd have killed you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm sure glad you caught him last night. You know, <laughs> Stan, Stan, Wendy, and I, we, we've been involved in fishing for a long time. And, you know, one of the things I, I feel about fishing is that it seemed like, you know, back in the earlier days of Bassmaster, you guys were all kind of friends. There was a brotherhood. There was a camaraderie. And, and I think now maybe there's a little bit more of a disconnect. Am I, am I correct in that feeling, or were you guys all really? Was, uh, Go. I, I think that was by design when ESPN bought Bass. They like rivalries, and they like head-to-head competition. I never one time competed against Roland Martin or Larry Nixon or Bill Dance or Dee Thomas or Dave Gleeby or Gary Klein or or any of those guys. I always competed against the fish and against the lake, and if I caught the most fish, I won. 
I never did really feel like, boy, I'm going to stick it to them. I'm going to show those guys. I was always trying to catch the most fish and never worried about beating anybody. If you catch the fish, you're going to win, and if you don't, you're not, and it's pretty simple. But it seems like ESPN wanted to create some rivalries and stir it up, and I guess they were trying to grow the sport, and they wanted to make it more like NASCAR and a little bit like boxing or something. It was a, it was a, a sport that were, people were pitted against each other, and that really wasn't what our sport was founded on. It was like a reunion. When you went to a tournament, you get to see all your buddies and, and uh, man, just glad to see everybody. I'm not saying that we didn't have some times that you got a little huffed that somebody got a little too close to you or cut you off or you felt like maybe they jumped their fish. There were a few of those incidents. But for the most part, uh, it, it was a lot of just camaraderie and good times, and it is not like that today. It, it is more of a uh, of a rivalry type sport. A lot of people out there don't like each other. Yeah. Why did that's, you, you know, that's, a, that's something that, that was lost because back in the day, I mean, this is back in the day when fishermen used to fish against each other from the front of the boat to the back of the boat, and there were some pranks that were pulled on fishermen just because it was fun. Nothing that would, that would interfere with the tournament, but, I mean, I know at one point in time somebody ran over a skunk and put a roadkill in somebody's life. Well, I know somebody else had caught a duck or a goose or whatever, and put it in a live well. So when the guy opened the live well and more, the goose came out of it and scared the heck out of the guy. But it, but nothing that was negative, and everybody laughed about it later on. But nowadays it's a little tougher environment. Yeah, part of the reason, I think, too, is in the old days you did draw a partner that was a competitor, and you had to have some diplomacy. You guys had to get along, and if you uh, – if you had a bunch of animosity created within that circle and you drew a guy, it's going to make for a long day, and neither one of you will probably do very well. It, you have to work as a team on that particular day. You can compete the next day, but you have to work as a team on that day. And nobody understands how that worked. At the beginning time, fishermen used to fish boater to boater, if you wanted to call that, in the same boat. And you'd switch. One guy would have the first half of the day. The other guy, that whoever had the boat, got the first half, and the other guy got the second half. But you worked together to get your limit to see how you came out at the end. Yeah, and that that was so important. You know, a lot of guys would – would create a little bit of tension in the boat. But I always tried to work really close with my partner on that particular day that he and I were together, and then we would compete the next day. But while we were in the boat, I didn't try to cut him off or do something wrong. I tried to stay at it and uh, work together. And as a result, you have a lot better chance of having a good day when you work together versus competition in the boat. Now, you might want to speak about the the art of backseating. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, uh, can you put a hold on that for just a second, guys? We've got to take a break. <laughs> hey, Hank, can you hold on for a little while and uh, yeah, let us? Uh, right here. Take, take your break. We'll yeah, right. let us pay for the privilege of having you on, would you please? <laughs> hey, this is Rod Real Radio on AM five forty or at rodreelradio.com. and you can go to your favorite. Uh, uh, podcast, and you can listen to the Rod Real Radio live, or you can download it. And we we want to thank you guys very much that do listen to us. 
you know, uh, on the site or uh, download us. I think last week it was something like about 65, 6,700 of you. So thanks a lot for sticking with us. We got Hank Parker with us. Stan, Wendy, and I, we got to take a break. We'll be back after these messages. I like rafting. I love whitewater. But I never forget that snowmelt in the river can cause cold water shock. I wear a life jacket always. Anyone with me has got to do the same. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Gamakatsu hooks are made from high-grade carbon steel, specially heat treated to make them light and extra strong but not brittle. The Gamakatsu sharpening process is the most modern in the world and results in a perfectly conical point that is unequaled in sharpness. Gamakatsu offers a huge variety of hooks for all types of fishing, drop shot, extra wide gap, worm hooks, finesse wide gap, and a lot more. Gamakatsu has a hook for whatever style of fishing you want to do. Don't waste your time on a cheap hook. Ask for Gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now. Hey everybody, this is a message for our listeners from a new Baja Magic Lodge at Cedros Island. Cedros Outdoor Adventures wants to make your dream of fish at Cedros Island a reality. Want to go after giant calicos or yellowtail with the best Cedros Island fishing organization, but you just don't know who to contact? Then give Cedros Outdoor Adventures a call at 619-793-5419, or even better yet, log on to their informative website at cedrosoutdooradventures.com. There you can visit their trip calendar and schedule a trip that's convenient for you. Once again, the phone number is 619-793-5419 or their website of cedrosoutdooradventures.com. I got a garage full of fishing tackle, and every time I get out on the water, I realize I forgot something important. But I never forget my life jacket. I make sure my buddies wear theirs, too. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Hi, it's Tony Gwynn. Nobody treats you better. Nobody beats El Cajon Ford. Hi, it's Tony Gwynn Jr. For years, my dad said it so often. Nobody beats El Cajon Ford, and nobody treats you better. And that's so true. Now I am proud to join the El Cajon Ford team because with them, it's all about family. They treat you right. You're part of our family at El Cajon Ford. Thanks, Tony. We'll see you at Broadway in East Main and ElCajonFord.com. Dan, Wendy, and I, we want to welcome you back to Ron Real Radio. Our special guest this hour is pro angler and TV personality Hank Parker. And, and Hank, you were, ta- you were saying as a young man, you just had this desire to fish. Your dream was to go to a Bassmaster Classic. Do you have, tell us about some of your recollections of the first Bassmaster Classic, uh, when that was, and how'd you do? Well, the very first classic I fished was at Reservoir in Mississippi, and uh, man, was I ever excited to be there! We had a press corps, and and uh, it, it was uh, it was I was kind of a bundle of nerves, but I had a chance to do really well in that tournament. Bobby Murray ended up winning the tournament in the same area that I was fishing. I ended up finishing ninth, and my roommate, my buddy Jerry Ryan, he finished third. And Bobby and Jerry both fished the same pattern that I fish, and I, I just, I was so nervous I didn't execute well. <laughs> and and after, after that win, Hank, first of all, what was, uh, and I, I hope we're not giving away any uh, classic secrets, but what was the, uh, the amount on the check that you took home that you must have been pretty proud of? 
Oh, man, I tell you, the first classic that I fished, you know, actually the first two was only 24 guys. Okay. And it was winner take all, 25 grand to win the classic. But the second place guy got nothing. The third place guy, it was all winner take all. And it was that way in the first uh, first classic. And then the second classic that I fished, which I won, uh, they, they changed that and started pay, paying other places. But, you know, the, the year that I fished the first one in, in Ross Barnett, the year before that, you would go to Montgomery, Alabama, and everybody get on the airplane, and they'd hand you an envelope, and you opened it up, told you where you were going. Nobody knew where we were going. It was all a mystery lake deal. Well, but I didn't know, get in on that. I missed that one year. <laughs> we used to call that the flyaway in some of the other competitions. Yeah. Yeah, we had, when a, we had Ray Scott on, he told us that uh, uh, if they weren't even it wasn't even called a classic, wasn't it called the rodeo or something like that? Uh, that none of the guys knew where they were going. They'd get on an airplane, and then it was a chartered plane, and, and Ray would have the the plane fly south and fly north. And he offered, I think, he offered five hundred dollars to any of the fishermen that could correctly guess where they were going. And no one won the 500 bucks, and the first uh, classic was held uh, on Lake Mead, in, uh, obviously in Nevada, and, and the rest is history after that. You know, the reason he quit doing that was Dance figured it out. Dance would call all these resorts <laughs> on all these lakes and try to fish. So the last one they went to when he got there, Dance's boat and truck was set there. Wow. Yeah. Now, Hank, oh, that blew Ray away. He didn't like that. You, you fished competitively. You were you were a, a, a really aggressive fisherman out there. And then all of a sudden, at, at 37 years old, you just decided to hang it up. Tell us a little bit about the thought press process that led you up to, to doing that. Well, nobody really, uh, unless you've participated on the level, realizes how much time it occupies. And I have five children, all girls but four, and uh, my my boys really needed me. And I was uh, I was at that age that I was making a really good living, and continuing to win tournaments wasn't going to make that much difference in my life. I had the television going. I had personal endorsement and opportunities to continue to design and work with different companies, and I didn't have to stay out there. And so when you fish tournaments, you can't be home for anniversaries. You can't be home for birthdays or graduation. All of that is set in a schedule uh, by the directors, and you just have to follow their schedule. And I had done that my whole life. I started, like I say, when I was 16 years old. So I was 36 years old. So for 20 years, I had really grounded out on the road, uh, fishing hard and never home. Uh, and so I had boys that wanted to race. They wanted to race go-karts, and they loved to hunt, and they needed the dad to take them to the woods. Mom does a great job, and, and my, my kid's mom did an awesome job with them when they were little, but they get to a point when they get 10, 11, 12 years old, they really need their dad. And so I, I made up my mind as soon as I got financially able, I was going to return to the tournament fishing and just keep my television stuff going and at least be able to stay home on uh, certain dates. And so that's, that's how it all worked. 
So when you, you first started the, the television thing, was it all fishing-related, or did you have an idea, or the, the people that you were working with had an idea that, that Hank, you're an outdoorsman, we can expand this to a lot more than just fishing? Yeah, we tried that early on, and we tried to incorporate some uh, home stuff, and uh, hunting television hadn't come about at that time. So uh, it didn't really work well. We tried that 84, 85, and 86. And then in 87, we just strictly did fishing from 87 on. And, of course, we've been doing Outdoor Magazine now for 35-plus years, and we still uh, is strictly fishing. Now, I do have a hunting show called Hank Parker's Flesh and Blood that I host with my co-host with my two older sons. But... uh, the Hank Parker Outdoor Magazine fishing series and Hank Parker on the water is strictly fishing. Well, and and now, you know, looking back at, at that time uh, and looking at the fishermen today, you think, you know, I really missed it. I, I, I wish I could go back to it. It's kind of like a basketball player or, or you know, a, a superstar that they, they just can't leave the sport alone. And I... I've got to tell you, it must be one heck of a rush to come into an arena with 40,000 people just going crazy at hearing your name, and you know you got a bag of good fish on the last day of a big tournament, and you just want to take that in. That, that's got to be a hard thing to walk away from. Well, I tell you, the first five years after I retired, I would go to the classic work, the sports shows. I couldn't even hardly go the weigh-in. It, it was tough. And then, you know, for three years, I emceed the weigh-in, and that was even harder. Oh, uh, it made me want to be there as a fisherman. And it, it was – I just really – I tried to stay away. Obviously, I couldn't because I had sponsor obligations to be there, but it was really pretty torturous there for about the first five or six years. I don't know if people understand, if you've been a competitive fisherman in your arena, and and, and, and I don't care what circuits you're in or whatever else, and if you decide you're not going to be there or somebody invites you to come out and you, here, you can be the the MC for this, this fishing arena, and you're not fishing against the guys that you're used to fishing. And if you're standing at the dock and they're going out one by one and you're not one of the boats that's going out there, that is maybe one of the hardest. I had to do that with a tournament circuit out here in the West, with West, West Coast Bass way back when. They wanted me to run a tournament and, I, and come up and, and just see if you want to do this, Dan. I, at the end of the day, I'm going, there's no way I can do that. I would much rather compete with these guys than sit here on the dock and be the guy that runs the MC at the end of the show. That's a tough road to hoe. So uh, I feel for you on that end, but you have done such a good job, and I, I'm one of the fortunate guys to get a chance to work with you on your TV show and had a lot of fun doing it. And, and the people loved you so much for what you did on the show, ongoing for years and years and years, that had to take up some of that gap. Well, you know, you just have to get in there and decide what you want to be and what you want to do and, and – uh and get content with what your purpose is. And when I when I committed to staying home and, and being with my boys and, and my daughter, I, I meant that. And so it, it took precedence over tournament fishing, and, and it, it did make it easier because I was predetermined. But the competitive part, when you get around it, you know, it's uh, 
it's something you never get over. You know, from the time I was 16 years old, I ate it, breathed it, slept it, drank it, you know. And so here I'm subjected to it all over again, and I'm not playing. <laughs> so it, that's, it, that's it, a really tough thing. People don't understand how hard that is. Yeah, yeah, it, know, it was a little, little difficult. Hank, what do you think has been one of the the biggest changes or in revolution in the fishing industry from the time that you were fishing it to what you're seeing happening with uh, competitive fishing today? Well, it is so, it is just so much electronics. It's maps, it's Google Earth, it's, uh, it's so much data that is available. Uh, you can go on your smartphone and you can find out what Van Dam won the tournament on three years ago or seven years ago or what Roland Martin used to, uh, to win the tournament on Toledo Bend in 1977. And you can get all that data. And uh, you, you've got maps that will show you the prime location where we used to go back and forth and idle for an hour to find the end of an underwater island <clears throat> trying to correlate with some kind of paper map that was about half accurate. <laughs> and now you, you just put a Lake Master chip in there, and you get right on the perfect spot, right on the end of it in about five minutes where you'd spend a half a day out there trying to mark those spots. So the electronics have changed everything. You're not kidding well, you know, between it, downscan, still... side scan, and all the rest of that, that you get so much information. Plus, what the guys can get on the internet, like you were saying, there's so much information that you can cut the time for pre-fishing down, where you can do a lot of it before you get on the lake, and then just get on the lake and go make a run around and find out what you want to fish today. Where we never had that. You're exactly right, and hey, if you're not doing that, you're already behind. If you haven't pulled up Google Earth, if you haven't, uh, if you hadn't studied all the data on the lake before you ever get there, you're way behind. Yeah. How about the evol- Hank? How about the evolution of the equipment? Like when you started fishing, especially competitive and Bassmaster, what rod and reel were you using, and how do you compare that to? maybe some of the rod reels that you're using today, because I know what it's like, and Stan knows what it's like in salt water when it comes to these big fish that we're fishing for today off our coast. It had to have been really something, too, and different when uh, when you were fishing. Well, you know, you look back, and you, we were fishing with monofilament line that had 20 to 25% stretch. Uh, you had glass rods uh, that were very, very parabolic. It was very, very hard to get a, a really, really good hook set. And uh, so there, there was a whole lot of things you could not do. In the old days, making a, a really, really long cast with a plastic worm or a jig, all that was out the door. You couldn't do that. You could get away with a crankbait, something with treble hooks, because you could keep a rod loaded while you had to fish on and got him close enough to the boat to get a hook set in. But as far as that spinnerbait, and uh, worms and jigs, man, you had to make moderate casts, you know, something 30, 25, 30 yards max because you had so much line stretch and your rods were so soft they absorbed so much of the shock you couldn't load them up. Man, and, 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 and the reels, uh, what do you remember your first reel that you were using? <laughs> I remember when I bought my first red ambassador in a box. It was in a wooden box. 
and I had a red fish. I had little bitty handles on it. Uh, there was a company in uh, in Missouri, or Arkansas, one that made a uh, made a handle called Gator Grip. Right, and you, you put a big grip on that little bitty those little bitty uh, handles on those reels. I remember those old red reels. <laughs> Boy, yeah, that, that was, was like you... innovation of the time, too. By the way. Well, that little know, innovation I, I, made a big difference, that gator grip. <laughs> it did. I, I remember the days when Lou Childers, Lou was the most innovative guy that ever lived. And I remember we were at a hotel in Jackson, Mississippi, and Lou Childers were there. And you read Bassmaster Magazine, and you read all these places that talk about, you know, everybody used to sit down and fish. And uh, what you want to do to get a good hook set on a plastic worm is break the boat seat. And all those ads and... Lou said, no, that's not at all what you want to do. What you want to do is generate speed. And he came out with speed spool, speed stick, and we sat by that swimming pool, and he put a scale in the bottom of the pool, a waterproof scale, and attached it to the bottom of the pool. And he said, all right, you get out here and with your big old heavy Fenwick rods, and you jerk as hard as you can jerk and uh, break your boat seat and see how many pounds of pressure you can generate at that scale. And we could generate about four pounds. And yep. uh, he would just like cracking a whip. He'd go, Chow! and he could generate about six and a half pounds. Blew my mind. Yeah, but when he made the loose speed stick, the loose speed reel and loose speed stick were the innovations of the year for for our bass fishing industry. There's no doubt. I I don't know. I, I work with Lou's today, and I, I work with those guys, and they've got such great equipment. But I said, I don't know where our industry would be. Lou got killed in a plane crash. Uh, 1976. Yeah, I started to say 76 or 7. There's no telling where our industry would have been if uh, Lou had stayed a part of it. Good gracious, what a mind he had. Well, he and Cotton Cordell, they, uh, they came up with that first uh, – BB1N and the BB1NG, and the, Lou was doing a lot of business at that time over in Japan, and he had a lot of contacts there, and they went back there, just to make a long story short. Lou had the idea for the um, the low-profile reel. Cotton was making gears for Abu Garcia in the aftermarket, and he couldn't sell them to Abu Garcia. They were so expensive. So he and Lou went to Japan to see if they could make the reel there, and it turned out they could get everything down to Pat except the gears. And they had a couple of days left in their, their visit. And as Cotton Cordell told me, he looked out the window of the hotel and he saw all these bicycles. All these uh, people were on bicycles. And he goes, you know, Lou, there's got to be bicycles. There's got to be gears. There's got to be someone that can make it. So they found out one of the – they were fairly close to one of the bicycle manufacturers. They went to them, and sure enough, they could make – the gears and Lou uh, decided to have them do the whole thing, and that company turned out to be a company called Shimano. And I guess the rest <laughs> is kind of history. Yeah, uh, that's pretty wild, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, so Hank, Lou, we Lou we want to went to Ryobi for a while before before they dissipated, and you know that was one of those that was a, the Ryobi team. Actually, I, I was on the team from the West Coast. There were six of us. But the Lou's Speed School team went to Ryobi and then went to Way of the Buffalo. But that was a wonderful, wonderful ride because those reels would outcast everything in the market back then. Right. It hey, guys, crazy. we got to take a break. Uh, uh, Hank, 
Can we keep you on for just a little bit longer? Because I want to find sure. out what you're doing today. And okay. I know you're involved in fishing today, and we want to find out to what extent. Can we have you stay on for a little longer? Yeah, be right here. Thank you, Brian. Besides, I got a story. Yeah, hey, and, and we want to thank Martha, your wife, for helping you keep up late, because I know you're three hours ahead of us, and we appreciate you being with us, sir. Yes, sir, no problem. All right, hey, we're going to take a break. Stan Wendy and I and our special guest, Hank Parker, will be back after these messages. Every serious angler knows that a quality hook is an important part of their arsenal. Gamakatsu hooks are made from high-grade carbon steel, specially heat-treated to make them light and extra strong, but not brittle. Gamakatsu ring hooks are made with a one-piece ring, no welds, no weak spots, a very smooth-moving ring. Gamakatsu offers a huge variety of hooks for all types of fishing. Live bait hooks, both light and heavy-duty, to four extra strong. Circle hooks, tuna hooks, ringed hooks, tuna doubles, and many more. Don't waste your next fishing trip on a cheap hook. Get Gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now. The warm weather is here and our lakes and rivers are brimming. Just remember, if you love California and you love to boat, please wear your life jacket. And make sure everyone with you puts one on, too. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Hey, bass fishermen. Who do you call for your bass boat insurance? Well, if you're not calling me at 1-800-BASS-BOAT for your boat insurance, you're probably paying too much and may not have the coverage that you need. In 1974, I developed the Bass Boat Program, it is what all the pros use today. The reason? No depreciation or any partial claim for your hull, your big motor, your trolling motor, or your electronics until your boat's 10 years old. That's right. You only pay $250 to get your boat on the water for any partial claim, and we still pay a stated value replacement cost for your boat if you have a total loss. We're the only people in the industry that does that, and that's why we are the choice of the pros. So if you want the best, forget the rest. Just call 1-800-BASSBOAT. Call 1-800-227-7262 or just spell BASSBOAT. 1-800-BASSBOAT. I know there's too many letters, but the T is free and the call's on me. That's 1-800-BASSBOAT, the choice of the pros for bass boat insurance. For more information, log on to 1-800-BASSBOAT.com. Rod and Reel Radio is now available as a podcast you can subscribe to on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. Get notified as soon as new episodes are available, or go back and listen to our past shows. Browse through all of our archive shows at roddenreelradio.com slash archives, and click the subscribe button to get started listening now. Stan, Wendy, and I, we want to welcome you back to Rod and Reel Radio, our special guest tonight. In the second hour is Hank Parker. And quickly, Stan, you had a story you wanted to tell because I want Hank to get into some of the things that he's doing today. Because Hank and I got a chance to work together. I was called to, to be, uh, well, first off, Hank came by the show. And we were at Fred Hall show, and I asked, he and Martha were going to go up and have a you know, dessert in the room, and I asked him if he'd come over. We had a live show going at the Fred Hall Show, and and, Fred, and he came over and sat down at the Hall Show and ended up doing the whole show with us, which is part of the ins and outs we still use today, which was pretty fun. And it was a laugh because, you know, Hank said, you know, I've I've won the Bassmaster Classic. I've done a McDonald's special. Now I've done Rod Reel Radio. I've, <laughs> I've finally made it. <laughs> so, and I was laughing all the way through it. Well, I get a chance to now work with Hank Parker on Hank Parker Outdoors on a on a show we did at Lake Casitas for big fish and how to catch them on the big baits. And he came undergunned, and we are out there. And so I got a chance to be on the show with him. And and while 
we were doing the show together, I got a chance to say, you know, Hank, I've won the the Tournament of Champions out here. I've got my own radio talk show, and now I'm on the Hank Parker <laughs> Outdoor Show. <laughs> I finally made it. And he turns around and said to me, and we're on camera at the time, he goes, you know, Stan, I and I edit every one of these shows, and you're never going to hear that on air. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was me, wasn't it? <laughs> Hank, uh, you know, we fast forward to today, and I know we here at Rod and Reel Radio, we like to pay as much attention as we can to the, the female anglers and the, and the gals that are, that are coming up representing their national teams. And, and we've also done, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of interviews with some of the collegiate teams uh, with, you know, out of uh, – Dayton, Texas, and Bryant College, where they're the number one teams. And I know, though, that you even go further than that, and you spend a lot of time with high school teams and those early anglers, and that's really something we don't see out here in the coast. Tell us about what well, you're doing there. I think you see that gravitate in the western direction. It has uh, it kind of started in the southeast, and now it is all over the south, period. Uh, and, and all over the north as well, and it is moving west. I mean, uh, Arkansas, Mississippi, Missouri, Louisiana, uh, uh, a lot of the Midwest states, Kansas, Iowa, Texas. a lot of, of high school fishing being developed. It's actually the greenest sport in all of high school is high school fishing, and it's the first year uh, in my career that fishing license exceeded the previous year. So we had a growth uh, in fishing license sales last year, and a lot of that I attribute to high school fishing. Oh, yes. I wish we Without could say doubt. that in California here since 1980. The number of licenses that have been sold uh, are only 55% of what they used to be in 1980, and I guess we've had a decrease in population or something in the state since 1980. It's 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 terrible uh, uh, that you know a lot of the manufacturers think that uh, you know you know a couple of years ago we lost a whole generation of fishermen to other activities and video games and everything like that. But you know I run the store here and Wendy, you see it at the show and stu- you do stand these young people that are into fishing, they are into fishing. And, Hank, you probably see that, too, where you are. Yeah, there's no doubt. It's uh, it's so many things kids have issues with all the cell phones and all the games and things that they have to do. But I think that it's, it's so artificial, it's not tangible, it's not real. And once you get a kid exposed to the outdoors, and it is so real, it is so tangible, it is such hands-on, once you get a kid introduced to that, uh, it exceeds anything he's ever been a part of. It, it's a lot of trouble to go fishing. It is a lot of trouble uh, to get that boat or go fish off the shoreline and get all your stuff ready. And it's no trouble at all to play a video game on a, on a cell phone. So you do have some resistance because it takes effort. But once you get past that, once you get them exposed, uh, it is such a reward, and then it's a self-recruiter. You get a guy to go, he gets his buddy to go, he gets his girlfriend to go, vice versa, and all of a sudden you got some kids fishing, and it's contagious. It's a, it's a fabulous sport, and it just needs a little 
shot in the arm and a little encouragement to get these young people out there. And that is happening in my part of the world, and I'm sure it's not far behind. Normally, we get all the benefit of you guys being the innovator. You know, you go back over the years, look at the spider jigs or the tubes and flipping techniques that D. Thomas came up with. And the West Coast are the innovators, but in the high school fishing, I guess maybe we're leading that – we're leading that way on the East Coast, but it's definitely headed your way, and our kids are important, and the sport is so incredibly important, and we need to get those kids out there. You know, for the young anglers, and I know you go to shows, you probably answer a lot of fan mail, you got a, a, you know, you're just out there and very accessible. For the the young men and women that come out that are aspiring to be pro anglers or to make a, a career in, in fishing. Do you have any advice for them that that you can draw from, or is there anything that you say to them that, you know, maybe helps inspire them to do to meet their dream? You know, the one thing that I would say to all kids, uh, and the more I do these high school tours and fish with these young guys and girls, the more I realize so much information at their fingertips, it can be overwhelming if you don't have the fundamentals down. So I really encourage, I would rather see a kid with a tackle box that didn't have anything but plastic worms in it than a kid that has a tackle box that's got every lure known to man in. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just too much. You can't learn every method, every technique, and be good at it. And you got to understand the fish and read the water. And you can be much more effective doing that if you'll take baby steps rather than giant steps. And that is the biggest challenge that I see in high school fishing is drawing these kids back and saying, hey, wait a minute, let's slow down a little bit. You don't need You know, i gotta, I got to add to that one little thing I asked. Well, we were doing a show on, uh, on the radio here a while, way back when, actually, a while back. And we had Rich Dauber on, and, and he was uh, one of the guys that was just come back from the classic out here in the West. And, and we had a caller call in. It was a young guy and said, you know, I'm high school and I want to be a pro fisherman. And what, are, what do you think is the, the best thing I can do to become a pro fisherman? And, and his retort was probably the best I've ever heard. He goes, first of all, get an education. Finish high school, go to college, and get a diploma because we've got enough stupid bass fishermen already out here. But learn how to fish your techniques and then learn how to fish the next technique and learn how to fish the next technique. He was, And it was brilliant because that's actually what you need to have for all of your fishing. One, get an education. Don't that's just it. drop it and go. Hey, Hank, we're not putting you out to pasture, and we just have a couple of minutes left, but when all is said and done, what what do you want to be remembered for when it comes to, uh, you know, people remembering the career of Hank Parker? Well, I will tell you the most important thing. My life is Jesus Christ, and I think to be an ambassador for him is by far Amen. more important than all the fish in the world. So it, it, that that's what I would like to be remembered as a guy that spread the gospel, a guy that cared about people and uh, loved loved other people. You know, that's you, you look back, D. Thomas, one of my favorite people in the whole world. You look back at all the tournaments that you won 
And they don't mean a whole lot 25 years later, but the people that you were involved with and the friends you made and the camaraderie, that's what it's all about. Uh, I look back at my career, and it's the people, not the victories. I understand. Hank, uh, again, people want to keep in contact with you, find out what's happening, what's up to date, what your sponsors are, anything like that. How's a couple of the best ways to do that? HankParker.com. You can uh, you can find out about everything that I got going on through HankParker.com. FleshAndBlood.com uh, as well. That's my that's my kids that manage that site. That's our hunting site. So between those two sites, you can find out about anything that I got going on. Well, when are we co- when are you coming back out here to the west, Hank? Whenever I get there, it won't be soon enough. I'm dying to get back out there. I need to come see old Rick Grover. I kept promising I'd do it. And I want to go back and fish Diamond Valley. So uh, I, I need to get back out there as quick as I can. Oh, you better believe it. Well, we look forward to having you. And when you want to come on out here, give us a ring, and uh, we can probably set up some of that stuff for you, Hank. Uh, uh, I, li- I like that, and you better be ready because I'll be calling. You know, and, and <laughs> right, you know. As Roland Martin told us, Roland, when are you coming back here? And he says, as soon as someone wants to pay for me to be there. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, thanks thanks a lot for being with us, sir. He's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, guys, that's it for tonight. We've run out of time. Guys, was this the fastest two hours we've ever spent? Seems like I say that (laughs) almost every night. (laughs) Well, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, it went by really fast. And, you know, one of of the things I was going to say while Hank was on was we had Lou Dave's on, and the thing he said that the kids need to learn is they need to to learn how to speak so they should take a speech class. You got that. Yeah, that's good advice. It really is good advice. Hank, thank you for being with us. Uh, we got to get off the air before they pull the plug on us. So uh, we look forward (laughs) to speaking to you again, okay? All right, thank you guys. Thank you so much. All right, hey, on behalf of Jorge and Ben down here in San Diego, always in behalf of Big Tuna Bill, Eddie McEwen, and Paul Leader. Stan and Wendy, thanks a lot, too, for your contributions to the show. Can't do it without you. Much fun, that's all i got to say. Hey, we want to say goodnight to everyone. Go out there and get them. They're getting away. We'll see you on the water. We're out for now. Goodnight, everybody. Ah, you know. But there's a sign upon your door. Ah. Uh-huh. Gone fishing. How real gone, man. <laughs> you ain't working anymore. Could be. There's your-